Hello, everybody. This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Thank you for tuning into my podcast today. This is episode 70. 70 episodes since we began on uh, December 17th, four months ago. So thank you to all of you who've been with me from the beginning, and for those of you who just joined me, welcome. Um, we hit our 8 millionth uh, listener, our 8 millionth download this past weekend. 8 million uh, in in less than four months. Amazing. Thank you. I have with me a very special guest, one of the great thinkers in this country, and certainly one of the great activists for decades. Uh, someone who has uh, led many fights for all the good people and all the good causes. Um, he is a voice, I think, for many, many people. He is a professor of public philosophy at Harvard University. He's a professor emeritus at Princeton. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot of ivy uh, going on there. If you've ever met him or seen him, he's, uh, ivy is not what, what runs through his veins. Um, uh, he has um, so much compassion and love and fight in him um, for all the rest of us. And I'm grateful uh, to have him on my show. I'm going to ring him up uh, on the phone. Uh, that's how we're going to have to do this today in the pandemic era of podcasts. So I'm going to just call him up here on my iPhone. Um, I'll have the luxury of having my microphone here in my little podcast studio, uh, but he will not. So um, I will, I think I'm just going to put the iPhone right up to the microphone. I think this is my apologies in advance. It's not the optimal sound, but it is how things used to sound uh, before the iPhone and before all this technology. And, um, you know, we're all working with what we can, what we can do uh, here right now. Uh, so let me, let me get him on the phone. In the meantime, um, let me tell you um, a little bit about one of our underwriters uh, for this episode today. Our new underwriter is Audible. This is the audiobook company. Probably now more than ever, it's a wonderful time to listen to an audiobook. I can tell you the books I've read and have then listened to on Audible, it's so much better. For instance, Bob Dylan's Chronicles Volume 1, that's his autobiography, to listen to the audiobook of that with Sean Penn reading Bob Dylan's autobiography. It's just brilliant. It's a wonderful way to reach people. I've recorded many of my own books with my own voice. It's a wonderful experience. And as a special offer to my listeners, they have a sign-up thing here where you can get a free book, get one of my books. Um, <laughs> Anyways, if you want to sign up for that or to get any one of the many free books that they offer, you just have to go to audible.com slash rumble, or you can text them. You just got to text the word rumble to 500, 500, text in the word rumble, and you'll be signed up for a trial offer and a free book. So support them. They support me and I'm grateful to them for allowing a voice like mine to be heard in a time like this.
you know, when I when I came, the last time I was in Flint and I introduced myself, I said, I'm in the city of Deep Deep Redwater and Betty Carter. They are so much a part of me, but I got some Michael Moore inside of me, too. That's right on the tape. Before I went in to talk about Bernie coming out of uh, the Jewish section of Brooklyn and all of the wonderful ways in which he exemplifies so much of the best of that secular Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. He was my dear brother, and uh, he's a human being, so we criticize him and make him accountable like everybody else. But at the same time, if you're honest about the deep love and respect that one has that I have for him, that I have for you, that I have for uh others as well. No, no, thank you. No, thank you for that. That was so kind and generous of you to say that. And thank you for going to Flint, by the way, um, and and mentioning those two uh, great singers uh, that are also from Flint. Uh, Cornell, seriously, we're in some deep shit. The truth, I know, I know, but I need, I need you and we need you to help figure this out. And I think a lot of people listening to this um, I've heard from many, many, many people in the last uh, 10 days, two weeks, whatever it is, uh, with Bernie uh, out of the race um, and now officially out of the race and endorsing uh, Senator or Vice President Biden. Um, people don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They, um, they, they believed in the concept of it was a movement more so even than it was just a campaign. And that it was about yes. about us, and and you know, of course, Bernie. We know Bernie. We've known, we've known him for many years. And when he says that, it's not about me; it's about us. It's not some branding cliche. It uh, that's right. That is who that's he right. is and has always been. And um, so, I think people are a little down and depressed and wondering where to go and what to do. But but the larger thing I want to talk to you about in the in the time that we have here is is the is the as I've been calling it on the podcast, we have three viruses that we're fighting right now. One is the coronavirus, obviously. Every one of us needs to stay alive and do what we need to do to do that. Number two is the Trump virus. That has to be removed as quickly as possible. It may not be until November, but it has to be in November. And then finally, the larger virus that was around long before Trump, the virus of greed, of of of, of capitalism, of a system that... Um, made sure that the only the few benefited from it and the many were to serve the few and to scramble for the crumbs that were left on the table. And so um, that's the larger virus that I think is at the core of everything, including the fact that we should even have as many people dying as we have dying right now, in, in, part, right. in part because the so-called leadership refused uh, to do anything about it, didn't like, didn't want to hurt the poll numbers, was worried more about the stock market, and and also doesn't believe in science. Um, and so here we are. And Cornell, I mean, I just got a notice here from the apartment building uh, today. They probably won't like me saying this, but I don't care. I'm I'm tired of everybody talking quietly about everything here, and they just got you know telling us that you know there's another person in the building here that's been tested positive, and and they're you know doing everything they can to help that person and make sure that they're quarantined away from everybody else in the building. But, you know, um, people are totally in a state of um, confusion, panic, uh, despair, um, demoralization. And I know you've run into similar people uh, 
in these last few weeks? And what are you saying to them? What can you say to the people listening here? What can you say to me? Because I'm, I'm one of those people too. I'm living through this. I'm trying to survive. I don't want to die. I just turn the microphone over to you. Yeah, one is I love the way you formulate the three different viruses. But as you know, my brother, I always begin with the primacy of the spiritual and the moral as we engage in political struggle against empire, predatory capitalism, white supremacy, mass supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, and so on. So the fundamental question for me, and the way it's an echo of the question that Beethoven wrestled with over and over again in his works early the great string quartet in West, you see you wrestling with despair, uh, death, and on intimate terms, a catastrophe. And his question is, how do we look unflinchingly and candidly in the face of the grimness and the bleakness of the world of massive suffering and misery and still muster the courage to love, beauty, truth, neighbor, justice, and myself as a Christian, love the holy, love God. But you see, that's the question of courage. And it comes to all forms, the secular forms and religious forms and so forth. But it's a matter of courage. Do we have the courage to be honest about just how grim our situation is? And you know it was very grim before the 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 the, 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 the physical virus hit. Right. Right. Very, very bleak before coronavirus hit with the other viruses that you're talking about. And yet at the same time, not in any way be paralyzed or debilitated, but actually still be buoyed up enough and revitalized enough to love the truth that would, to love the truth enough to tell it, to love justice enough to seek it, and most importantly, to love people and the least of these oppressed, wretched of the earth enough to serve as sacrifice. And so it becomes a spiritual question of what kind of human being we're going to be. I was just reading this powerful piece by Brother uh, Ajumu Baraka of the Black Alliance of Peace. You can see his energy. You can see his vitality in trying to tell the truth about the American empire, predatory capitalism, white supremacy, and so forth. Similarly so in terms of various uh, musicians. Musicians now are, are, are producing different pieces, beautiful pieces, trying to muster the energy and the vitality not to be debilitated in the face of overwhelming despair and despondency. And so we need each other. We need each other's words. We need each other's examples. But we also need examples from the past. Now, as you know, my brother, I come from a blues people. Mm -hmm. I 244 years of white supremacist slavery. Then another hundred years of Jim Crow neo slavery, and then after 1975 and 80, here comes the new Jim Crow, which is another form of neo slavery. In the midst of that kind of catastrophe, in the midst of that kind of massive suffering, how does one muster the kind of joy required to keep moving, the kind of commitment to something bigger than oneself, freedom, justice, equality, democracy? God, whatever it is. And that, that, those are spiritual and moral questions. And it, it, there's no answer to them in a theoretical way. The only answer is through example. The only example, 
The only answer is through touch. The only example is through agents rendered in stories. So we tell stories about heroic hope. We tell narratives of hope who served and sacrificed and so forth. And, and that's one reason why I started off reflecting with you, my brother, not because I'm in any way deifying you or fetishizing you, but you are a human being that I love and respect because of your willingness to get up every morning in a blues-like situation and sing the blues. As long as you sing in the blues, you're not succumbing to the blues because as long as you got song inside of you, you got commitment, you got energy, you got vitality. So you can hold the blues off by singing that blues. And that's what so many of your films are about. You singing the blues. Well, let me tell you how bad it is, but also let you know that no matter how bad it is, no matter how these neo-fascists are of our ruling class like Trump, or these those neoliberals or the other side of the ruling class like Biden and others, crushing Bernie at the moment, trying to somehow render invisible too much of the suffering in terms of their own narrow paradigms, how do we still tell that truth and tell the truth in such a way that we acknowledge? Yes, we know that milquetoast neoliberals like Biden are better than vicious neo-fascists like Trump. But we still have to be honest about who Biden is, architect of the largest prison system in the history of the modern world, and we're still bragging about it just a few years ago with the new Jim Crow invasion and occupation of Iraq. That's over one million precious Iraqis who died. They'll never come back. No serious apology, no serious reflection in, in, in a substantive way about an unleashing Wall Street greed. We can go on and on and on. But at the same time, we also are in such a grim moment with fascists in the White House that if we're going to have an anti-fascist coalition, then Trump has still got to go. Ecological catastrophe impending, possible nuclear catastrophe, and then the other catastrophes of wealth inequality, decrepit schools, mass incarceration, domestic violence, and so forth. And so, for me, you know, this, this notion of, uh, of even voting for, uh, to see the vote is just one moment in a much, much larger question of what it means to be a decent human being in a decaying empire, what it means to be a fellow citizen in a democracy that is undergoing deformation and decay and deterioration. So that uh, uh, there's no doubt for me that I don't, as we're part of a movement on the ground grassroots, we tell the truth about Biden. We tell the truth about those around him. That includes Obama. And that's one of the challenges that Brother Bernie had. How can he tell the truth about Biden without being too critical of Obama when Obama is 95, has a 94% popularity rating in the Democratic Party? Now, you and I, we've told truths about Obama. We've gotten in deep trouble telling those truths about Obama from Democrats and fellow and others. But we have to be able to tell people the truth if you're going to respect them, and yet at the same time not lose sight of the humanity of Brother Biden, the humanity of Brother Obama, and recognize the ways in which they have contributed to drones and war crimes and Wall Street expansion and domination and so forth. Now, at this particular moment, where fascism is such a 
live option that I have no trouble whatsoever providing a vote for a neoliberal disaster like Biden to push out a neo-fascist catastrophe like Trump. But I'm not going to do it by telling lies about Biden. That's why I went at my dear brother John Lewis the other day, and I love John Lewis. He's one of the great heroes. Mm-hmm. He's, he's one of the great freedom fighters in the 1960s. But now, engaging in this neoliberal chatter about Biden is a great man of courage, great man of conscience, he will make a great president, that's a lie. Don't lie to the people, my brother John. And I love you to death, and I'm praying for you if you wrestle with this cancer. But in the name of Martin Luther King Jr., in the name of Fannie Lou Hamer, don't tell people lies. Biden is not a great man of conscience and courage. Not at all. He's a mediocre politician who conformed the neoliberal policy, willing to make alliances with right-wing strong thermons and others to constitute the foundations of a prison system that continues to haunt and hunt down too many poor people and black people. So the question here goes back to Beethoven, though, brother. How do we unflinchingly tell the truth about the grimness, but don't allow despair to have the last word, be able to move and groove in an improvisational way in order to be part of an anti-fascist coalition? An anti-fascist coalition means there's going to be many of your political foes who are part of that coalition. Brother Biden would never be a political friend of mine. I mean, as a Christian, I love him. and He's made the image of God just like me and you. But he's been a foe for a long time. He's on the other class divide. I have a critique of the ruling class across the board. The neo-fascist wing of Trump, the neoliberal wing of Biden, and Clinton, and Obama. But at the same time, I've got to be able to maneuver in such a way that the worst of the neo that the worst of the ruling class, which is the neo-fascist wing, does not rule again. And here I, I do resonate with my dear brother Chomsky. I really do. That uh, number four years of Trump, and you're talking about uh, part of the planet possibly going under. There's a possibility that you never know with nuclear catastrophe. You never know. I'm so moved uh, by what you're saying and how you're able to um, to lay it out, to lay the whole map out, and to and the most important thing uh, to not lie to people. Um, Absolutely, it, it doesn't mean that um, uh, it is. It has so little to do with are you going to vote for Biden. I think we all made that clear. Bernie made it clear. Yes, whoever the nominee is, and I think in one of the polls. Somebody ran a poll with Trump versus that Roomba, you know, that robot that vacuums your floor on its own, and the Roomba won. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying. I think we're we're kind of all on that page of uh, uh, if 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 it was the Roomba versus Trump, we're all down with the Roomba. Um, but um, wow, wow. but having said that, but what, what, what's so sad though, brother, is that there were significant slices of the neoliberal wing of the ruling class in the Democratic Party that was willing to go with Trump over Brother Bernie. Yes. And yes. see, that just lets you know right up front, wait a minute, see neoliberals talk about diversity and race and class and sexual orientation, their fundamental commitment to the rule of capital is to the profit motive, is 
tied to the Wall Street greed that's pushing us to the edge already. They were going to let Brother Bernie go under? In case people have forgotten, uh, back four months ago, just four months ago, um, both Hillary Clinton, separately, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, when asked, said that they would not commit if Bernie was the nominee to vote for him, to endorse him, to back him. Meaning, in other words, they would rather have four more years of Trump than Bernie Sanders because Bernie to them represented the true threat to their moneyed interests. And that their moneyed interests reigned supreme, even if it means four more years of Trump. It was, even though I wasn't and shouldn't have been surprised, it was a stunning public admission, admission by both of both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden that they would not necessarily vote for Bernie Sanders if he were the nominee, that that they would they would tolerate uh, four more years of Trump because it would protect their interests and the interests of, of the the ruling class support that they have. And one wonders where Brother Obama was on this. I know he probably played some role in the background in terms of his relation to Pete. Brother Pete Buttigieg is like family to me. You know, Brother Pete's father was my close, close, close partner. Joseph Buttigieg translated Gramsci into English. And uh, so Brother Pete is always like family to me. But I got a critique of my dear Brother Pete as your liberal. But his relation to Obama, Amy's relation to Obama, how the neoliberal establishment came together so quickly right when we were celebrating after after Nevada. Well, no, it was on the move. It was a landslide in Nevada. That's the only candidate ever in the history of this country uh, to win when it was a contested primary, to win the first three primaries and caucuses, to win the popular vote, the first three in a row. Never had happened. Bernie Sanders did it. And it flipped them out. And they were like, and and, I mean, they were even on mainstream media. They were talking about Bernie as the presumed front runner, as the front runner, as the uh, potential nominee of the party. And... They had to work very quickly to um, solidify, circle the wagons um, around Joe Biden. You know, we'll find out later what was offered uh, to all of them. We'll find out what the truth really were. But we would also have to go to the upper echelons of MSNBC and their role as neoliberal propagandists, flashing Bernie. We'd We'd have to go see what CNN was about. I think CNN might be a little bit more uh, uh, loose in that regard, but still with so many moments in CNN where they were just trashing Bernie directly. You said to yourself, wait a minute. Yeah. yeah. Are, are you a propaganda machine or are you a news? Not just all of them, but it was all the media was pretty much down with this, with the, with the playbook of, of this can't happen. <laughs> and, yes, uh, yes, yes. Hey, God, for Sister Amy. Hey, Amy and, and, and the uh, Democracy Now. Yeah, Amy Goodman. Yeah, not Amy Klobuchar. Yeah, Amy oh, Goodman. Oh, no, I'm talking about my, my, my yeah, I'm talking about my, my comrade. Yeah, amazing. but other than Amy Goodman and a few a few online uh, publications uh, that, you know, I encourage people to read, uh, other than that, um, in the mainstream media, we really didn't, you know, those voices weren't heard. And... Um, it you know occasionally you and I got on, uh, you know MSNBC was very good. Brother, brother to Anderson me. has always been kind to me, and brother Don Lemon. Has been yeah, kind Don to Lemon me. is good too. Yeah, yeah. to have me on. That's very, that's very, very true. And when we say they're good, we they're not. They don't necessarily agree with us, 
but they give us they give us the chance to speak. Absolutely, and that's right. I'm grateful to that, and I'm and I'm I've been I've been grateful to Chris Hayes for that. I'm uh, uh, grateful to uh, you know other people there. Um, Ali Val, she's been good. Um, so so we find the good in in all of them, but 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 throughout the mainstream media, it it was a um, a nonstop. It was like Sherman's march to the sea. <laughs> Bombardment of propaganda against. Not just Brother Bernie, but the issues that we're raising. Yeah. You've got a right to health care, job with a living wage, some kind of access to yeah. housing yeah. quality. But Cornell, how are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay for that? Uh, how, no, how, how are you going to pay for that? And you know, and it's so ironic now. Here we are, literally just weeks later, and nobody would dare ask the question, how are you going to pay for that in terms of getting us through this pandemic? You know, That's or exactly right. it's like, exactly. it's like, wow, well, we don't have that money. And then all of a sudden, well, we have the money. <laughs> and, and then and the second move was you're putting too much stress on the government. What makes you think the government can be a force for public good and, and common good? We need to look to the markets. The markets are, are going to be the mechanism to deal with most of these problems. Part of the neoliberal ideology, part of the old capitalist ideology that goes back to the founding of the country. You said, well, wait a minute. Isn't it interesting? When there's a crisis for Wall Street, they look to government. But when poor people have chronic crisis and look to government, they look to be lazy. They look to somehow mm. being anti-market. Now, mm. we know we're in a major grim moment, and if we don't look to government, if we don't look to public institutions, we are going under. And, and, and what institution do we actually depend on more than any other? The military, which is the most socialist institution in the country. You see, we don't outsource that one. We don't look for markets for, for the Army and Navy and so forth. It is government, and we bring in the military, bring their military hospitals. Thank God for them at this particular moment. But we need an analysis of America as an empire, America as a predatory capitalist civilization, and the countervailing forces against it. The anti-racist, the anti-sexist, the working-class movement, the anti-homophobic ones. But without making that larger connection, brother, we go end up with another neoliberal move in the name of diversity with the black folk and the women and the gay brothers and lesbian sisters included within the imperial and class hierarchy. And lo and behold, most of the masses of people get pushed back. And this is why the issue of race is so very important within the Democratic Party. And that's one reason why the Democratic Party cannot have a Socratic dialogue or critical invest critical reflection on the Obama legacy. They won't allow it. He's untouchable. He's like a Delphic oracle. He's like a political pope. He's untouchable. You can't say anything critical about it. And and that's very much it was very difficult to say anything critical about him in the campaign, you know? Well, and, 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 I did. I, 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 held, <laughs> I, I said some, but I held off because yeah. I wanted people to really gain access and focus on Brother Bernie and his vision and okay. what we're about. If I brought in Obama, they said, oh, there's old West again. He's an Obama <laughs> hater. No, I'm a hater of injustice, be it yeah. Wall Street, yeah. Freedom, yeah. be it drones up, the letters to people in, 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 in Yemen and Pakistan and Afghanistan and other places. In my last film, I... I put the scene in there that the mainstream media was all there filming it and no one ever showed it of him going to Flint 
and fake drinking the water to tell to tell it's it's it was the saddest thing as a majority black audience of flint residents and he's telling them it's safe to drink the water when the water itself as i was told later was brought from air force one that landed in flint they brought the clean water for him when he asked for a glass of water all of us in flint we all knew see we're in this high school essentially that's was being closed down and they had shut the water off in the school there had not been water there in like over a year like no cooking no you know the toilets only the toilets had water so they could use the toilets that was it and so when they went and they ran and they got him in a minute they got him a glass of clean water where forget about clean any water there was no water so I put that in the film and on oh, it really upset people. But I just, this is what I said, Cornell. And I say it, I said it during Bernie's campaign. The, it's the fact that I love Obama, that I still remember tearing up in the voting booth, being able to vote in my lifetime in America for a black man for president and for a man whose name wasn't Barry, but right there on the ballot, Barack Hussein Obama that I, that we'd come somehow <laughs> that far. And, and so, but it is out of love that it's only your friends. It's only the people that really love you are the ones who can say to you, you're messing up. You're wrong. Exactly. You did the wrong exactly. thing, Barack Obama. And, and, and that's an act of love. That's not, that's not me hating Obama. I don't hate Obama. I, I love Obama. And because I love Obama, I want Obama to be everything that Obama wishes he was and wanted to be. I, I think that one of the, uh, the undeniable things about Brother Barack and, and Sister Michelle is the unadulterated, unconditional love that they have for both of their precious daughters. And as you know, Malia's a student right here at Harvard, and she's a magnificent student. She's a wonderful student. She's critically engaged and so forth. And so anytime you're loving people, you're, you stand in contact with their humanity. Love it, Barack. Love Michelle. Protect them. Respect them. But also correct them. And the correction is because you're loving folks yeah. who yes. are yeah. also not just bigger than them, but you're loving you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of folks that made it possible for them to gain access to it. You know, when I saw Brother Barack, uh, uh, right there on CNN that night, in 2008, I had tears in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. But I, I had tears in my eyes for my grandmothers and grandfathers. Mm -hmm. I had tears in my eyes for Frederick Douglass mm -hmm. and Ida B. Wells Barnett and for Martin King and Fanny Lou Hamer and Stokely Carmichael and Diane Nash. All of those rich, rich tradition. It's black freedom struggle. This great modern, maybe the greatest modern tradition of spiritual fortitude and moral courage for 400 years hated, still dishing out love warriors, terrorized all these decades after decades, still dishing out folk who want freedom for everybody, not to terrorize back. No black versions of the Ku Klux Klan in the black freedom movement. You see what I mean? That's what I was crying for. And then I said to myself, well, I hope he understands the bird. Not a burden of perfection, but being true to Martin. Don't just put his picture or put his, his statue in the Oval Office. Be true to his struggle against 
militarism, against poverty, against racism, against Jim Crow, new Jim Crow, old Jim Crow, against materialism, the culture of superficial spectacle and image and people all obsessed with celebrity and so forth. And all of those traps, unfortunately, neoliberal administration under Obama fell under. And by bringing in Brother Biden, what did he do? He provided a halo over Biden. So it was primarily the black folk who pushed Biden into this position that he's in right now. It was Clyburn and the others that pushed him in. They were the catalyst, as it were, to open up. And that's what was upsetting to me, as you know, deeply upsetting to me. Because I love black folk unconditionally, and I don't ask them to love me back. They were to be loved, and I'm going to tell them the truth when I think they're conformist to an unjust status quo. I'm going to tell them the truth when they're cowardly and don't want to tell the fundamental truth about how they're complicit with a system that has lost sight of the humanity of so many poor and working people, disproportionately black and brown. And so that's a critique of the black bourgeoisie. That's a critique of the black professional class. That's a critique of the black chattering class. Obsessed with careerism and opportunism, and so many of them willing to sell out, as we saw with Bloomberg and as we saw with other candidates when they came along with big money and status. And we're seeing this now with Biden. All the lies being told about Biden. You got folks talking about, oh, he's been a major advocate for the downtrodden all of his life. Get off the crack pipe, Brother Dyson and others. Please. Biden ain't never been a major advocate for the town, for the downtrodden. You just want access to his status hierarchy and so forth. So that it's a matter of telling the truth. Who's going to tell the truth? And without telling the truth, the people perish, my brother. That's right. And I, and and I, oh, I, where there is no vision, <laughs> people perish. I'm, I'm, I'm biblical. Thank God for our Jewish <laughs> brothers and sisters laying that down in the scriptures. Representative, <laughs> Representative Jim Clyburn uh, is the number one recipient of money from Big Pharma in the United States Congress. And I'm talking about of Democrats and Republicans. Wow. He receives wow. more money from the big pharma lobby. Tell the truth, tell the truth, my brother. I know, and people, well, wow. yeah, but he's done all this other good, and he's done this other good. But, see, how, and, how, but journalism itself is so dead. How come the journalists don't say that? Why don't they, they say it? They don't television. Why don't they talk about that in the New York Times? Why don't they talk about that in the Washington Post? You see what I mean? You know, here's the thing. If they were, if they were doing a story on, if they were doing a story on somebody in the, in the say, the New York Times, uh, and they said their name, uh, you know, uh, uh, James Thompson. Let's just make up a name here. Uh, James Thompson, um, who was responsible uh, for the deaths of seven children in you know 1975. Right. They right. every time James Thompson's name would be mentioned, I don't mean that he killed the the kids, but that he, you know, uh, maybe was the principal of a school and and uh, he knew that there there was a problem uh, with this chemical leak didn't do anything about it. Seven children died. And for the rest of his life, if he ever appeared in the media again, there would be a comma after his name, and it would say um, whose actions resulted in the deaths of seven children. I would like a media that starts to do a similar thing with our politicians. So when you see Representative James Clyburn, comma, the number one recipient of campaign contributions, from the pharmaceutical industry, comma. That should follow him wherever he goes. People need to know 
He may say something good. He may do something good. But he is also, more so than any Republican and any Democrat in Congress, the number one recipient of money from one of the most evil industries and institutions. Evil in the, when I say evil, let me make, get this straight. We need medicine. We need medicine. All right? But in other countries, they don't set up their medical system as a for-profit enterprise. They know that people need medicine, and so they make sure that the medicine is provided. You, If you get a prescription in the United Kingdom and you um, need anything from the super strength Tylenol to HIV medication, no prescription can be more than 12 pounds, 12 pounds, 20 bucks. That's it. Whether it's a thousand dollar HIV medication or a $25 super Tylenol. Um, and, and the fact that we do this here, and this is what so depressed me the other day when Biden and Bernie were on the screen and they talked about, they formed six tax for task forces amongst their campaign people. And they're going to come together. They're going to come together and come up with some really good stuff regarding criminal justice, regarding climate change, regarding income inequality. There were six topics like that. I kept waiting to hear it, and I never heard it. Healthcare was not one of them. Uh, It blew my mind. And uh, no foreign policy either. No foreign policy either. Yeah. No. They. Yes. Right. That's. Well. That's another whole thing. But. But. You know. But. And. And. And so Bernie and Bernie threw him a couple softballs and got him, got Biden on board, the $15 an hour minimum wage, got Biden on board uh, from, you know, for free uh, tuition at at public universities. Uh, Biden wants to cap it. Like if your parents make more than, I don't know, 150,000 a year combined income, you can pay for it. But we'll get into that some other time why that's even wrong because you, you want even the wealthy you want the, never the public school should ever charge a dime to anybody. You should never introduce a, anything into a public system, whether it is the library, whether it is the public schools, whether it's the fire department. You don't say that, well, after a certain income, you got to pay. No, after a certain income, we've made sure that you're paying a lot in taxes and that's how you're going to pay for it. That's how you're going to pay wow. for it. But anyways, I didn't know if you saw that, but it just... But I tell you this, though, brother, don't yeah, relate yeah. to Brother Clyde, bro. God bless him, you know, I know he just lost his... his, his, his no, mom. no, I know, I, and right. I can say, I can tell you 10 great things about him, you know? You know? Oh, no, no, I, I agree, he's a human being, we got to keep him accountable. But when I look at it through the lens of the black freedom struggle, though, brother, we have always had black voices to be critical when certain black figures have become too well-adjusted to injustice or started selling out. Henry Holland Garnett called Frederick Douglass a lackey of the American empire when Douglass called for the annexation of the Dominican Republic to be part of the United States. Now, you see, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yes. I talk about it in Black Prophetic Fire, my book. Every, and, and David Plate talks about it in his book on Douglass. Mm-hmm. Douglass, Douglass was, a, was as great as they come but he still needed accountability. Fannie Lou Hamer brought critique to bear on Martin Luther King Jr. when Martin Luther King Jr. sided with Hubert Humphrey and, and LBJ against the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party of Black folk. Moses and others. And Fannie said, you're wrong, Martin, you're wrong. I'm questioning America, I'm questioning you. 
that doesn't mean that she was trashing Martin. Right. And right. Martin turned out and said, see what I mean? William, William Monroe Trotter, the, the Guardian. His Guardian went all the way up until he committed suicide in 1934. He was critical of other black leaders, not just Booker T. Washington. He was critical of W.B. Du Bois. He was critical of Kelly Miller. That's why I like Black Agenda Report with Glenn Ford and, and, and Margaret Kimball in there. You got black voices that are keeping some of the black neoliberals accountable when these black neoliberals act as if they're untouchable. And it's not just Obama. It's a whole black neoliberal political class that needs to be interrogated, not hated. Not trashed, but rendered accountable. They keep me and you accountable, right? They figure <laughs> you and I, we, we're responsible for, for Bush. We're responsible <laughs> for Trump. When we support the third party, keep me accountable. I want to hear your argument. Now, how did my vote in Massachusetts and New Jersey, the state that went completely with your Democratic candidate, somehow make it possible for this Republican to win? Let's let, let, let's be accountable and answerable. Let's have a conversation, but we're going to keep you accountable, too. That's what they don't like. No, they That's don't what they like. don't like. And the young folk, you see, you you and I know that if American citizens under 40 were the only ones who could vote, Bernie would have won last time and this time. Right. right. Because the young folk can't stand the viciousness of the neo-fascist ring of the ruling class with Bush. Uh, with, with Bush, with, uh, with, 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 with Trump. Trump, yeah. Trump yeah. And they see through the hypocrisy of the Milton neoliberal wing of the ruling class with Biden and Clinton and Obama. They see through it. And they're right to see through it. Now, what we have to, what we, what we got to make a case for, though, that we can't have the young folk just dropping out and becoming apolitical. You've got to remain politically involved and participate in a variety of different ways. It's not going to be just a matter of which way you vote. We're talking about how you live your life. It's a marathon, not a sprint. We're talking about ways in which you're going to be counter voices against predatory capitalism, against white supremacy, against imperial policy. From now until your death, that's the question of what kind of human being you're going to be. Like, oh, Brother West, it just doesn't look like we go win. You don't say. You don't say. You're not in this just to win overnight. You're in this to be part of a force for good that has the possibility of being triumphant because you are playing a part. And it's always open-ended. Always. And we won't even get to the Christian version of which the forces for good for the most part be lied on, misunderstood, crucified, or assassinated. That's also part and parcel of the human condition, too. And that's a real possibility, too. But then it bounces back, even after whatever form the death takes. That's what Easter's about. It bounces back. The blood of that cross constitutes drops of love tied to justice. The people remember the sacrifice of all of those folk who came before and decide they're going to do the same thing to their generation, and they pass it on to the next generation. That's the history of struggle. That is the history of movement. That's the history of moral witness. That's the history of spiritually being tied to something in the world but not of the world and being willing to serve the least of these and pay whatever price it takes in order to be that force for good you have been called to be. Then you do it with smile, with style, with self-criticism, 
with laughter, with humor, brother. Mm. Oh, what a beautiful way of being <laughs> in the world in such grim and bleak circumstances and conditions. And let's be very clear, it has always been bleak. It has always been grim for poor people, yes. Yes. for black people in America, for indigenous people, for the white poor, even when too many held on to their whiteness as a way out. And yet the best of the traditions that all of those people have produced have been traditions that have been tied to, back to the Beethoven question, that love of neighbor, justice, beauty, goodness, and those who are religious, be they Muslims, be they Christians, be they Jews, or any other religious or love of the holy. But that's that's an option. I mean, I, I, I love God and the holy, but I, I got deep, deep connections to secular comrades and secular uh, sensibilities, even as I hold out for Jesus. Will you, uh, Cornell? Will you um, go back through the the early on when we were recording here at the beginning? Uh, uh, you brought up the the uh, Beethoven analogy. Um, oh yes. Can, you, will yes. you will you go through that again? Because I thought that I heard it on my end, but I thought it was very profound. And um, if you just don't mind uh, giving us that again. Yeah. Well, Beethoven raises the question: How do we muster the Beethoven? Right. Beethoven. Yeah, this is Ludwig. This is the great Ludwig himself. You're, qu- you're quoting Beethoven. Absolutely. Well, I'm adding much of the courage, because he, he just says, to look unflinchingly at the ugliness and evil in the world and still love it. That's Beethoven in his journal. Wow. I'm adding a little blues dimension to it. And I'm saying, to muster the courage to look unflinchingly at the ugliness, the evil, the greed, the corruption, the hatred in the world, the suffering in the world, the misery in the world, and then muster the courage to still love the truth that is also connected to that world, the goodness that's connected to that world, the beauty that's connected to that world, the holy that's connected to that world, and then say, no matter how despair seems to overwhelm me, it will never, ever have the last word. Mm. That's the cue. Gerda used to say, he or she who has never despaired has never lived. That's Gerda. Mm. You see what I mean? Yes, yes. And it's, 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 it's nothing wrong with, with despairing. It means that you have a sensitivity. It means you have a, a acute perception of what is going on. The suffering and misery in the world does lead toward a wrestling with despair. It's like Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov. Yes, we do wrestle with overwhelming absurdities tied to cruelties and mendacity and so forth. And I love the way you, you, you started our dialogue, my brother, because when you talked about the virus that's connected to corona virus and then talked about the fascist virus in White House Republican Party and right-wing, cold-hearted media, and then brought it out to the larger virus, the system that we inhabit and find ourselves in. And the great Audre Lorde used to always say, we've got to look at the piece of oppression inside of us. Mm-hmm. Even Foucault talked about the spiritual fascist inside of us, what I call the gangster inside of us in the Christian sense. And that has to be wrestled with and tried to extricate, even though you never fully extricate it, 
but that's the only way you can break the back of the fear that is the basis of our being deferential to a neoliberal status quo, a neo-fascist status quo. Break that fear and at the same time be willing to love. The only thing that breaks the back of fear is love. That's the only thing that breaks the back of fear. Very much so. And so in the end, it's not going to be just a matter of, you know, trying to trying to argue over Biden versus Green Party or Biden versus third party Biden and staying home and so forth. It's just a brief moment, and that's my own uh, uh, sense of being part of an anti-fascist coalition. That if it requires, especially being in a state that's a, a, a state where the voting is tight, then having to somehow vote for a milquetoast neoliberal that you know has been tied to some very, very uh, unacceptable and, and, and ugly policies to push out a fascist, it's God Almighty. That's part of a price to pay. But don't do it in such a way that somehow you're thinking that you're voting from, for some major force for good in a mm-hmm. positive way. It's mm-hmm. negative. It's right. over right. against. You know? And I know Chris Hedges and the others who I love and I have great respect for, uh, you know, if they disagree, I mean, they would be, I mean, Brother Chris is arguing that, that Biden is more dangerous than Trump. He just says, don't, understand, don't, don't view Biden as a solution. He's absolutely right. But whether he votes for Biden or not, he's still my brother and my comrade. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, <laughs> the, um, right. Dick. No, but this no, is... But the Revolutionary Communist Party. I'm going to love that brother to death. He's the one I disagree. He doesn't vote at all. <laughs> because he doesn't believe in the system. But when he's out there marching, I'm marching with him. But I'm not a communist. I'm not. I'm a revolutionary Christian. So we have these differences, but we're still able to, to have some overlap. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, Chris Hedges is a, uh, a close comrade in the way that, that uh, uh, Biden and the Biden and I could, could, could never really be politically. I'm talking politically. Right. Right. So okay. they're on the other side of the class war that's taking place. We're right. at right. war. We're at war. We're at war. And, and so this is, so what you're saying here is a version of the by any means necessary that um, if one of those means has to be voting for somebody um, that uh, supports the things that we don't support, if if that's if if the anti-fascist action that we all must take this year to remove that from the White House re- requires by any means necessary, which means that term means that you may need to use a means that you don't necessarily agree with. That you don't That's necessarily true. like, um, true, but brother. but nonetheless, if you're if we're looking at the short term and the long term, in the short term, we have we have a we have a virus in the White House, and it must be eradicated nonviolently at the polls and removed. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And there, we are acknowledging the degree to which the milk toast, mediocre, and uh, ways in which neoliberalism has been tied to repression and class material hierarchy and all of that ugliness, it is still anti-fascist enough to want to push out of fascism. I'm anti-fascist. I want to push out of fascism. We do have that particular moment of common ground. And this despair that you talk about that I brought up at the beginning 
that everybody, people listening to this right now know exactly what we're, because they're feeling it. They're feeling this despair. But your suggestion here is that, is that, um, not so much that we have to wrestle with the despair, but we, but maybe I'll just put it in my own words that we see the despair as a gift. It's something that we embrace. We embrace, we hug, hug that despair and, and use our power that all of us have in us, the power of love to, to first of all, um, not let the despair control us that we control, we control it. it. As you said, it proves that we are a feeling people that we, have care in us. We have empathy in us. And, and, um, but, but we must win, <laughs> not the despair. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so worried yeah, that no, so I many, mean. so many people now in the, we'll call it post Bernie, but it's not really post Bernie. Uh, cause Bernie and his ideas, first of all, his ideas have won the day as far as I'm concerned. And we will see, especially after this pandemic, many of the things that he uh, is fighting for are going, there are no brainer now with people. I've talked to, talk to people, you know, I think a lot of us are not, we went back to using the telephone <laughs> in the last few weeks and we're calling friends and talking to people <laughs> and it's, it's kind of nice. And, and everybody's like, even people I know that they're not necessarily, you know, as far as I am on these things, uh, it's like a no brainer to them about universal healthcare, healthcare for all, every. Yeah. They're like, and nobody should have to worry about paying for it. And obviously the government can pay for it and the government will tax people for it. Mostly the rich. And, um, and we're all going to pay less than we do now. Absolutely. I mean, the virus just exposed. This is such a major. It's been completely exposed. It's been completely exposed. The veil has been stripped off. But let me just say one word about this despair though, brother, because I think in many ways you're probably tied much closer the rich Catholic tradition, and I'm tied to the funky Protestant tradition. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Irish. Aquinas uh, uh, and others, they, they have a conception of despair where both reason as well as passion work together for the right kind of reason, which may not require as much intense wrestling, but allow us to hug and work through it with that rich Eucharist that's waiting on the other side. Whereas, you see, we Protestants, especially left-wing Protestants, I'm talking about the left-wing Baptists and Anabaptists and Quakers and Mennonites. I know you've got connected to the Mennonites and so, you know, the Mennonites, the folk who helped produce Rembrandt. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, yes. The, the level of despair you get in a great Rembrandt painting, a self-portrait, uh, the return of the prodigal mm. son. You just mm. take a look at that in the middle of this catastrophe. Mm. You say, Rembrandt, left-wing reformation. How are you going to deal with that kind of despair, brother? You, 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 you've been bankrupt. You were once the greatest painter, and now you're bankrupt. You're living with working people. You push near the Jewish ghetto, so the Jewish bride, another great painting of his. How are you going to deal with that, Rembrandt? Well, it's going to be an intense wrestling but it is a wrestling that goes beyond even a hugging, and it is a kind of gift, but it, it's more of a, uh, what would be the right kind of word here, brother? It's, 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 it's more of acknowledging the effects of the devilish dimensions of our human condition. Mm-hmm. And we're on a battlefield, and the only way you can actually come out through it it's going to be both making a leap, 
because it doesn't look like you're going to win, but having unbelievable fortitude, but recognizing the degree to which what you up against has tremendous power, mighty, but it is not all mighty. And that's a little bit closer to my funky left-wing Protestant your rich, embracing, hugging. Now, I think it's tied to your rich Catholic formation. I'm not putting down the Catholic formation. When I say hugging, I don't mean like hug it out or some warm and, no, no, no. Warm and fuzzy thing. No, I'm talking about... You have to despair as gifts. You have to yes, and you have to wrap your arms around it, and you have to hold yeah. it in place, and you have to stop its violence, and you have to stop the inhumanity of it, and you have to stop yeah. it hurting yeah. those who can't fight back. I mean, this is. I mean, I, I, I have to. This is a That's lesson. Beautiful. I I learned this lesson in That's second. Well, I learned it in second grade. I ended up being the biggest kid in class all through grade school, tallest, biggest, wow. right. So wow. the bullies didn't pick on me. Uh, they they left me alone. I looked like too much trouble, even though I was not. I was not. You know, I. So I um, but I would. But the uh, the bullies would go pick on one of the little kids, and I go and I'd wow. step. I'd step in. I'd step in between them, and I just look at the bully. I give him the kind of the stink eye, like, "Are you really going to continue with this?" And and if the bully did start to reach out to me. Um, and start flailing, you know, his fists or his arms, I would wrap my larger arms right around his whole body and I'd hold him in place and he'd struggle to get out and I wouldn't let him loose. And I'd say, you have to stop in my second grade voice. (laughs) You have to stop. And I'm not going to let you go until you stop. And I'm, and, and so it looked like a hug and the nuns would be like off in the, and they'd look at what's going on over there. Oh no, that's just little Michael hugging one of the boys. And, um, but, but what I was doing was stopping his violence to this little kid and they would stop, they would calm down and they'd stop flailing and I'd let go. And I'd like, come on, let's play marbles. You know, let's do that. And, and that was, that was kind of, I look back now and I think about, um, you know, how do things begin in anyone's life? But I remember thinking of using, I guess the, I used to think it was a drawback being the tallest or the biggest or whatever. Uh, but I started using it to the advantage of, um, stopping the bullies essentially. And, um, and I didn't, there was no thought process behind it. I I can't even claim a faith based, uh, uh, ambition here. (laughs) It was just, I just didn't like it. I didn't like, I didn't like, I didn't like. Well, you could imagine though, too, though, brother, that, uh, that uh, the victims of the bullies having that anger, you know, that wonderful line in Audre Lorde's essay on anger. Anger is the libation for the fallen sisters. That, that, that anger becomes a righteous indignation Mm -hmm. that, and and, and it it complements your ability to stop it. But, but the, the folks who have been thoroughly victimized by it, they've got to come to terms with the anguish and agony inside of them. And so that righteous indignation, like Jesus in the temple running out the money changes there in Jerusalem, that it becomes a way in which not revenge, not hatred, not contempt for persons, but the contempt for the injustice, the loving of the sinner and the hating of the sin that is enacted in such a way that it still, I think, has it, 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 it has a certain kind of uh, 
warlike quality. Warlike quality. And uh, and that, you know, that wonderful essay by William James, the moral equivalent of war. We got to learn how to go to war against injustice, war against poverty, war against imperialism, war against white supremacy, male supremacy. But how do you do it in such a way that you don't become victimized by uh, hatred and a uh, 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 contempt that is inside of you that devours the best of your own soul? Because you've got to be equipped. You've got to be fortified. Well, isn't that where art and the creative side of, of us come in? Isn't that where, right. because whether That's it's hip-hop right. or whether it's humor, comedy, whatever, right. we, we, I mean, I've always said this, some of our greatest comedians, uh, uh, Richard Pryor, um, uh, 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 Charlie Chaplin, were some of the angriest people. Um, and Absolutely. they figured out how to use their... Yes. Some of the most traumatized. More and most traumatized, right. Absolutely. But I'll tell you, though, brother, that people don't understand the way in which your artistry is shot through with a magnificent sense of humor and the comic. It's right there on the screen. It's artistically depicted in very nuanced ways. And it's one of the ways that you make connection with the humanity, even of the folk you disagree with. Because in the end, we're all headed to the worms. That is a profoundly human solidarity. Right. right. That our mortality can become a launching board for our solidarity. But that means we're solidarity with all of the folks who are struggling all around the world against the forces that are trying to kill them psychically and economically and socially and so forth. And uh, 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 as long as we're around and there's a cloud of witnesses, though, brother. Yes. The last word is not in, which means despair can never be the last word. It must not be the last word. Absolutely it must not. not be, my brother. Not at all. And I know as long as you're around and I'm around, we going down swinging like Muhammad Ali and Ella Fitzgerald, my brother. <laughs> That's <laughs> the truth. If it ain't got that swing, it don't mean a thing. If it ain't got that swing, it got to have that love and justice in it. <laughs> That is the, that's exactly how I feel. And, um, even in the midst of our isolation right now, you know, what would you say to people? Because I've been telling people that, uh, a movement has been ignited. It's not, it's not going away because a candidate isn't going to be on the ballot that you need to look at the big picture here and millions and millions and millions of Americans, uh, have said quite clearly they are tired of living the way we've been living and there must be change. And so what can you or I or others, you know, who have been helping Bernie and others to lead this movement, to facilitate this movement, you know, what, what is it that we can tell people that we're going to do, but also what they can do and what they can do with us and we can do with them in the months uh, ahead here, especially when we are able to somewhat come out of our isolation here? I would say that we have not known one moment in human history where there have not been forms of death and dogma and domination that have been operating, losing sight of the humanity of people. And so the question becomes here in this moment, there's still forms of death, forms of dogma, forms of domination that are operating. And we have to muster the courage to be willing to tell the truth about our past that connects us with those persons who were willing to 
serve and sacrifice, given the truth that they told oftentimes they were crushed. But they moved the movement further along. Now we have a moment as mortals, as human beings, to unflinchingly look at the death and dogma and domination and its connection to forms of suffering and misery and say, we want to be, in the language of the great John Coltrane, forces for good, that love supreme, that justice supreme. So so just before we close uh, here, Cornell, um, I guess my, my last question to you is, is that um, a lot of people are hoping that the movement will continue, this movement that got ignited uh, in these last months and millions and millions of people wanting to see fundamental changes in our system, in our society. I don't think that has gone away. In fact, I think it's it's probably grown because people have had the time to experience what they're experiencing now. You know, the 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 fact that, that the number of African-Americans uh, dying in Michigan, uh, in New York, the percentage, um, that it's, they don't need to sort of ask the question on the mainstream shows, well, why is that? <laughs> it's like, uh, re- really, aren't we beyond having to ask that question? It's because the people that serve us, the people that take care of us in the hospitals, in the grocery stores, in 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 the places that are keeping us alive, the the people that that are working the line at Con Ed or the utilities or whatever, so that we can all have electricity during this time. Who's making sure that the water is getting from wherever it's coming from into our tap? You know, it 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 isn't people that come from the other class, the 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 wealthy class. It's the people that have less money that are keeping us all alive. And many of them are black and brown and not white, but many of them are also white and poor. And so, so I think for those who've had the privilege of being able to stay at home and I, and believe me, anybody with two kids right now is saying, what, what fucking privilege are you talking about? (laughs) Cause they're they're climbing the walls. But, but those of us who have had the privilege of being able to have some time at home, at least I can speak for myself, it has given me numerous hours to reflect, to think, to be inspired, to start writing down the next thing that I need to do, the next, the next movie. The next movie is being written right now in the silence of this apartment. Um uh, oh, and then I've got another idea that's not a movie, something I've never done. Would I have the courage to actually do what I'm thinking of? This is what happens when you're you're encased in your in your quarantine. Um, but so I think a lot of good is going to come out of this. I, I think as, as sad as the moment is, as many people as we're losing, um, that that nobody feels good when they see the statistics that Chicago is 30 percent black yet 70% of the deaths. You, you really, you don't need a preacher and you don't need a, a anything uh, to know in your heart of hearts, not only how wrong that is, you also know why it is. And, and that I'm a beneficiary of that. I, sitting here in this apartment alone, I get to live. Others are dying so I can live? No. You know, I got to tell you, Cornell, I actually was thinking of writing this and I thought, don't, don't put this on social media because people will think you're nuts. But I actually thought during this whole time when there are all these nurses and all these healthcare 
people in the hospitals uh, don't have the protective gear. And I thought to myself, and I wrote this, I wrote this down and I said, um, I just want to state publicly, if you see me being wheeled in with the coronavirus, I do not expect you to give your life so that I can live. I do not. I just, I just thought, I, why should they have to give their lives? Because the system that I'm part of and that I benefit from is going to kill them? No, not, no. I don't want their blood on my hands. Um, and I don't expect anybody to take care of me unless they've got the protective gear so that they can take care of themselves. Now, I know that sounds like a madman talking, but I mean it from the deepest, deepest place in my heart that, um, that the, this, this system that you and I fight for to change, to make better, that, that we haven't gone far enough to the point where our brothers and sisters who are not paid enough, who are, and I'm not talking about just the doctors and the nurses, I'm talking about all those other healthcare people in the hospital do all the, the so-called lesser jobs. They are mostly, certainly here in New York City, they are black and they are brown. And, and they are not to die because I failed, I failed to get this system corrected enough to the point where they would at least have some gloves and a mask and a gown for when I, that day comes when I'm wheeled in there. That is, they are not to die because of that. And I am, I am in part responsible for this failure. I take that on myself. I know I've done a lot. I know that I've tried to do good, but it hasn't been enough. We can't go back to the old normal. Oh, no. no. That's over. Oh, we're not going back to normalcy at all. Without with take the time, though, brother, to re-fortify and re-dedicate ourselves to being faithful in life and faithful unto death for the struggle against the system that you're talking about. So no matter how grim it may be, we're not fighting it just because we think we can win in the next few years. We're fighting it because it's wrong, it's unjust, it's deployed through the sight of the sanctity and dignity of everyday people or poor people. That's what Black Lives Matter, Brown Lives Matter, Poor Lives Matter, Women's Lives Matter, Gay, Lesbian Lives, Trans Lives, that's what that means. The willingness to tell truths about that suffering and then to do something about it. And that's true no matter what color, no matter class, no matter what social uh, orientation or, or gender one actually is. It's a human choice in that way. And there is no rebirth. There's no revitalization without forms of death and without forms of wrestling with what seems to be moments of debilitation but we can bounce back. And I do, my brother. I want to wish you a happy birthday for next week, man. <laughs> what a Another hot. year, brother. Another <laughs> year next week. Another year, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> well, th- thank you for that. Um, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a thing more men should do uh, to each other. <laughs> it's acknowledge and remember their birthdays and uh and now what is your birthday my birthday is the same day as thomas hardy june the second complicated and and wrestling gemini that's what i'm told i don't really follow that astrology that much (laughs) it sounds good it fits you though um 
But brother, love you, man. Thank you for all Thank this you. time. No, no. And uh, stay strong and God bless your loved ones, man. And we we going to come out swinging together. I, yeah. I, I, I've got a wonderful picture of us uh, <laughs> uh, when we were there uh, somewhere in New York City raising money for the breakfast school. And the brother Basil was saying that you got that picture too. I said, "Oh, oh yeah, I have yeah, it framed. I have it framed and in that same picture. Oh, we yeah, had was a wonderful moment, brother. We were swinging in, and that's was- been years ago. <laughs> oh yes." Well, we're going to come out on the other end of this, and and with all the hundreds of thousands of people who are listening uh, to us right now, uh, I know they're going to be with us, and together um, we'll keep fighting for that better world. Thank you so much, Cornell, uh, for Thanks this. Thank you, my brother. Thank Stay you. Strong. Okay. Um, bye-bye. And uh, that is Dr. Cornell West. Um, I've known him for a long time, and uh, he is so full of life and love and fight. Um, he speaks exactly what he thinks. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't... <sighs> You could be his best friend, but if you were messing up, he'd tell you, again, the true sign of a true friend, because they care about you. They know that you're better than that. And um, that's who he is. <laughs> I'm still I'm still processing everything I, I just heard. Um, uh, I'm grateful for what he said, and I'm grateful to you for being part of this. Um, to the over well over 8 million uh, people that have downloaded this podcast since December 17th and listened to it thank you all of you for that um, what he said about the despair is true it cannot win it's there acknowledge it it's a sign that you have feelings that you're affected by what's going on but we have our work cut out for us now and after this is over. And I think that, you know, what I've told you from the beginning, since I started talking about this pandemic, uh, you know, well over, I probably first was talking to you about it two months ago, back in February and doing my own research, making my own calls to my own sources, uh, in our medical establishment, in our government, um, and telling you early on that this was not going to be a a one month thing, a two month thing. And the recent news here in the last couple of days that, um, you know, finally, you know, the politicians, some of them are starting to acknowledge what I've known for a couple of months, what I was told by somebody very connected and high up in the NIH, National Institute of Health. This is a, at least a two year pandemic. There is no guarantee of anything at this point. That's when despair hears that, despair comes in the door with a big-ass grin on its face because it's got us. It can't happen. It can't happen, and it won't happen uh, in part because, um, if I can say this, you've got me. You've got you've got me on the side of what, where we need to be and what we're going to fight for. You've got Cornell West. You've still got Bernie. You've still got a, a lot of people. And you know what? We'll... Let's just let's hold out some kind of um, hope here that um, that we'll have a, a piece of Biden with us too. In part because you and I both know so many, and some some of you are actually listening to this, 
who have supported Biden all along and or ended up finally supporting him. You're good people. I know what you want. I know the world you want to live in. And um, so if he understands that you're his supporters, a smart politician does what the people want him or her to do. So make your voices heard. And um, and then we'll fight for the best. Not just hope for the best, fight for the best. Okay, my friends, that's it for Rumble uh, today. And um, I will see you again soon. There are things afoot that are going to be announced by yours truly here uh, uh, right after, I think, maybe possibly as soon as right after the weekend. So uh, please uh, tune in, check in for that. Uh, check my uh, social media too. Um, I can't talk about it today, but we'll see. Uh, maybe I can, uh, maybe I'll have a surprise for you at the beginning of the week. I'll leave it at that. Thanks everybody. This is Rumble. I'm Michael Moore and we'll talk soon. Mm-hmm.